Titus chapter 3, here this morning on page 999 in the Pew Bible. If you want to take that Pew Bible for your own, we'd love for you to have that as a copy of God's Word for you. That would be our gift to you. So here we are in uh, Titus chapter 3. We're finishing up uh, today, right? This will be it. I'm, uh, I think we're going to do, what was that, about eight or nine verses? I, I'm, I am determined to finish Titus today, right? As all the people of God said, amen. That, well, that was a little too encouraging, amen there. Um, so, but here we are, Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Hear now the word of God. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now. We pray that you would help us to hear from it, that you would speak to us in it, and that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ because of it. And so we are honored once again to sit now and listen to you through your word. So come, speak through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1865 that a 36-year-old Englishman by the name of William Booth began a ministry later known as the Salvation Army. Uh, Booth intended to meet both the physical and the spiritual needs of England's most destitute, their most poor. General Booth's battle cry was, go for souls and go for the worst. Prostitutes, homeless, drunkards, and, and they would go out into the streets and minister to them, share the gospel with them. Many met Jesus through this ministry, incredible ministry there in the 19th century. But his success not only attracted supporters, you may know it also attracted enemies as well. Those who served in the Salvation Army were pelted with hot coals, sprayed with tar, beaten and stoned in the streets. The Salvation Army resisted their enemies with a cheerful, God bless you, and an offer to pray for them. Well, night after night, Booth would come home to his family, often bleeding, often bruised after being attacked, preaching in the slums of England. And yet during Booth's ministry, he would travel over five million miles He would preach over 60,000 sermons and often drawing comparisons to Christ's own life of persecution. 
Many saw the similarities between Jesus and his follower, William Booth, as he, he and his, his followers were, were encouraged to be strong in the face of suffering and even to welcome it as an opportunity to be Christ-like as they devoted themselves to what Paul would probably call good works. Of course, we have been studying the book of Titus now, haven't we? And uh, we have seen in this book, a very practical book, I hope it's been a blessing to you, that, that Paul seems to continually return to the theme that we should live lives because of the grace in which we have received that would attract people to Jesus. We should have attractive lives. That people should come and want to know Christ because of what they see in us. A number of years ago, I was hiking at Bryce Canyon in, in southern Utah, uh, southern Arizona. I don't know if you, you've probably seen pictures of Bryce. There are these uh, rock formations they call the hoodoos. And there are these, uh, these spires that are they're orange and red and yellow out there in the desert, some hundreds of feet high. And I was out there in September on a Thursday morning, and the place was packed. I was amazed at how many people were there. In fact, I had to hike out for miles and miles to get away from, from all the annoying people around me there. I was trying to, you know, be in the solitude. But what, what was, it was striking to me that it was the middle of the desert. I mean, what are these people doing out here on a Thursday in September? Well, there's something that drew them to this place. Well, I use that as a metaphor that, that, that the people of God are to draw people to Christ. The body of Christ is to be beautiful and glorious and sacrificial, that we adorn the gospel that has drawn us to Jesus. And so Paul says to Titus, I want you to create churches like this on the island of Crete. And you do so, as we saw in chapter 1, by appointing qualified leadership that will oppose false teachers. And we saw in chapter 2 that they are, the, the church is to live as a family, as a community, one with one another, living holy and self-controlled lives as they serve each other. And then we saw in chapter 3, didn't we, that the Christians are to be model citizens, that they are to submit to the governing authorities, they are to speak evil of no one. All of this is behavior that Paul calls again and again in this book, good works. It is the fruit of the gospel in our lives. And so the theme of Titus, one last time, is that truth leads to godliness. The truth about God's grace will impact us and change us. And so today we come to the final verses of this book. You know, Paul ends Titus like he ends many of his books with just kind of a, a seems to just getting out everything left he wants to say. I'm always not quite sure what to do with these passages, but I, I trust God will bless us through it. It's really just miscellaneous instructions on the church's work. And so consider three final instructions from the Apostle Paul to the church on Crete. First of all, Paul would have them warn the divisive. Warn the divisive. You see, after this beautiful explanation of salvation, one of the most glorious sentences on salvation that we spent a couple weeks on, we see Paul's exhortation in verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. These things being the gospel, which he has just laid out so beautifully. So insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed in them may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
And, and so Paul says, hey, stress these things, insist on these things, keep talking about the gospel, keep reminding the people that Jesus has come, Jesus has lived a perfect life, Jesus has died upon the cross as a substitute to pay for our sins, Jesus has risen from the grave to pave a way for us also to have everlasting life in him, and that we find salvation in trusting in Christ alone. Not through our works of righteousness, but through faith alone. Paul says you have to insist on these things. Now, I know we, we, you're probably saying, well, hey, didn't we talk about this last week? Didn't we do verse 8 last week? Yeah, we did verse la uh, uh, last week. I'm just trying to insist on these things. As you see, Paul tells us, he says, hey, don't move beyond these things. Don't move beyond the gospel. And the reason why I'm laboring here, just for a moment, even though we covered this last week, is I think the churches around this world, especially in the West, are missing it. I think many of them are missing it. In fact, it was just a week or so ago that I came across an advertisement for another church. It says, at such and such church, I'll just read you their advertisement, quote, and such and such church, meet new friends and neighbors, hear positive practical messages that uplift you on, number one, how to feel good about yourself, Number two, how to have a full and successful life. Number three, how to handle your money. And number four, how to overcome stress. Now, I, I just, just imagine for a moment that kind of mailer coming out from the church on Crete. Right? Hey, why don't you come on over to church on Crete? You can meet your neighbors and you can learn how to feel good about yourself. I mean, I don't, I don't see that anywhere in this letter. Now, let's be clear. I don't want you to feel bad about yourself. I mean, sometimes I do, but, but, um, right? but often I don't. Right? I mean, I, I, I do want us to meet neighbors and make new friends. Certainly, I think that I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But Paul says, hey, you, 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 you need to insist on the gospel. The gospel has to be in front of the people always. Don't move beyond the gospel. Why? Because it's in the gospel that we find power to do good. Is that not what he says there in verse 8? Insist on these things. Why? Here it is, purpose clause. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Where did William Booth find the power for his good work? I'll tell you, he found it in the gospel. He found it in what Christ had done for him, and it propelled him to live a life like Christ. So Paul says, verse 8, affirm the gospel. And then he gets down to verse 9. And he says, avoid the controversial. See what he says? But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So the gospel, he says, is excellent and profitable. These genealogies, these, these divisions, these controversies, they're unprofitable. They're useless. So firm this over here and avoid that. Avoid what he calls foolish controversies. Now, this is not just an issue in Crete, by the way. Uh, this is happening throughout the, the, new, the, the apostolic church in Paul's day. Paul would write about this in many of his letters. For instance, he wrote to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculation since they breed quarrels. There's lots of quarreling going on in the church of that day. And it didn't end that day, by the way. It continues today. People wanting to debate foolish controversies. You've met these people, haven't you? I trust they've come along your path. 
and they just want to get off topic, and they, and they want to they talk about this little weird thing that they've discovered. I mean, you've met the people that have cracked the, the Bible code, haven't you? Right? Am I the only one who, who these people seek out? They, they, they found the secret. I uh, found the secret of the Bible code. And if you, if you uh, take the third letter after the eighth word that begins with Lamed, right, and you, and you multiply it by seven, and then you read backwards from the center of the book, you find God's secret message. Right? Go on Amazon, secret Bible code. There's hundreds of books all about the secret Bible code, right? And you don't need to know the code in order to know what God wants for you. In fact, I actually tried it once. And I, I read the secret message, root for Duke. So I don't know, maybe they're, maybe they're on to something, but, um, right? I mean, it, it's uh, just, just a, a month ago, I, I got a voicemail. I got, came into my office, got a voicemail. And I, I'm sure from a very well-meaning individual, but he was calling me to warn me about the, the soon-coming alien invasion and that the aliens are just demons in disguise. And so he was hoping to set up an appointment with me in which he could uh, sit down and lay out all the, uh, the troubles that we're all in for. What does Paul say? Verse 9, avoid foolish controversies. Avoid them. Now, please, let's be clear. Not all controversy is foolish. I mean, Paul is always in controversy, isn't it? I mean, he even said, remember chapter one, rebuke the false teachers sharply. Jesus was about as controversial as you'll get. And you look throughout church history and you'll find any person that kind of strikes your fancy, any person that stands out in the history of Christianity, and you'll find a controversial individual. You'll find someone who's taking a stand for something. In fact, around this time of year, there's one individual in church history that is prominent, the Bishop of Murrah, who we better know as St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas, you understand, was actually a real individual, loved the Lord Jesus, defended the gospel. He was once at the, a council in which a man named Arius rose and began to mock Jesus in song, and St. Nick walked up and punched him in the nose. Right? He was excommunicated from the church at that point. I mean, who knew St. Nick had it in him? Right, But it's controversial. The Protestant Reformation, there was controversy over the authority of the Pope. The translation of the English Bible was very controversial. So, so in other words, some controversies are necessary. We're going to fight over the gospel. We're not going to let people attack the gospel and, and lie down at that. We're going we're to stand up for the Bible. But we need to avoid the foolish controversies. Perhaps like a speculation on a genealogy. You see there... In verse 9, he warns them of the people that love to talk about genealogies. Now, this is something I've really never had. I've never had an argument with someone about a genealogy, but I guess that was their issue. Our issue is uh, alien invasions, evidently. But um, they're, they're, they're preoccupied with the, the genealogy. You say, well, what, aren't the, geneal the gene genealogies in the Bible, aren't they good for us? Well, of course they're good for us, aren't they? Um, and next week, God willing, I hope to be in Matthew chapter 1, and we won't cover the genealogy, but it, it begins in a genealogy, and, and, and that tells us a number of things. It tells us Jesus was a man. It tells us Jesus had a grandpa, and uncles and cousins, and so forth. It tells us Jesus was a descendant of Abraham and David and, and, and even Adam, that is, fulfilling the promises God has given from old. And so those are, of course, very, very helpful, and we, we need those genealogies. God gives them to us for a reason. But evidently, these people were, were taking these obscure genealogies that you might find elsewhere in the Old Testament and creating elaborate stories based upon obscure people. I mean, you, you, you might even write, you could 
possibly write a best-selling book about some unknown character that no one ever heard of, heard of tucked away in an Old Testament genealogy. You might even be able to sell millions of these books if you encourage people, pray like this guy prayed and God's going to give you things. And the reason he doesn't give you things is you don't, you're not praying the prayer of what's his name that no one ever heard about. Right? And he says, hey, avoid those things. He goes on and says, avoid the disputes about the law. Of course, they were arguing over how to keep the Sabbath. They were arguing over the kosher laws. They, they had all these rules, and they were debating. He says, hey, don't get bogged down in that, right? And, and that, again, once again, that didn't stay in Crete. We continued to get bogged down about arguments over the rules. In fact, I found this was interesting. I came across a second-century pastor just 100 years, perhaps, after Paul wrote the book of Titus, and this is what he told his congregation, forsake covered clothing, remove everything in your wardrobe that is not white, right? In fact, I, by the way, I once served in a church where I was required on Sunday mornings to wear white, I don't, I don't know if they read this guy or what's going on, but he says, hey, only white, no longer sleep on a soft pillow, nor take warm baths, he says, I don't know what he's talking about. He says, if you are sincere about following Christ, never shave your beard, right? For to shave is an attempt to improve on the work of him who created us. So uh, maybe he's on to something. I don't know. I'm naming name a child after this guy. But you know, what is he talking about? Why, why, why would you stand in front of your people and, 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 and lay out all these rules and these laws? And, and that, I'm, my friends, it continues to this day, even in our own denominational history. Uh, the Baptists, in the, by the way, in the 19th century, for, spent decades fighting, believe it or not. That's how I know that's hard to believe, but they did. Um, and fighting over a very particular issue. And, and it was a new practice in the church. And people said, listen, if we begin to do this, we're, leave, we're out. We're, we will not go to that church. We are gone. You know what the issue was? For decades they fought. An, an indoor baptistry. I mean, I mean, who ever heard of such a thing? I mean, Jesus, Jesus wasn't baptized indoor. What are we doing, right? We're, and, and then they, they, the church was torn apart for, for decades, fighting over these issues. And Paul says, hey, let's, how about, I have a suggestion. Let's not fight over these things. Avoid these things. Avoid the people that are constantly bringing up these things. Now, you, you might read something like that, and you think, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Right? If, if someone wants to talk about the Bible, I mean, it especially for the pastor, isn't that his job to talk to people about the Bible, right? Just keep on meeting with them over and over again. Just keep fleshing it out and hashing it through. No, no, that's, that's not my job. That's not your job. Avoid them, he says. Because, and listen, the tendency is, okay, I'll send another email. I know this is email number 25, but, uh, but this one's going to convince them, and they'll repent, and they'll believe, and I'll just send one more, or I'll just have one more conversation. And it just, Paul says it comes to a point where you have to move on. Now, please understand, he's, he's, not, he's not talking about people asking difficult questions. We, we should encourage those people who are truly seeking. But, but there, there are people that Paul here describes that, just want to push and push and push the, the, their theological hobby horse. And just, it's all they want to talk about again and again and again and again. And even if it stirs up controversy, that doesn't matter. Even if it undermines the church's leadership, that doesn't matter. And Paul says it's unprofitable, it's useless, and it's not worth your time. In fact, it's not just harmful, uh, just wasteful, it's harmful. Look what he says in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division... 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Right? So he says, listen, to some of these people, they, they stir up division. They're like a, like a hurricane. And they're, all they are is just blowing things around, a destructive force that seems to do nothing profitable. And he says, what do you do? You warn them once, you warn them twice, and then you have nothing more to do with them. And you think, well, why, 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 why two strikes you're out? Why, why, why only twice? Well, one commentator was helpful for me. He says, the problem with dealing with people like this is they get an emotional satisfaction out of the debate that they create. There are some people that just like the controversy. They just like the fight. They love the shock on people's face when they tell them they found the code. And Paul says, you, okay, you try once, and then you, you try twice, and then you're done. You don't get, get sucked back in. You just don't keep going back in and say, okay, well, let's have one more conversation. You're done with them. I, I don't know. Uh, this this Chris, Christmas season, um, you're you going to watch Charlie Brown's uh, Christmas story? Um, of course, we will. Um, we, we, we love Charlie Brown. And uh, it's one of our movies that we watch. And, of course, you know, um, Charlie, Charlie likes to play football. You've seen this, right? I sure. And uh, Lucy wants to play football with him. And, of course, every time you know this, right? She pulls. Am I the only one who knows this? She pulls the football away, okay? And Charlie comes running and goes flying and falls on his back. And, and every time, every time. So you know, the Thanksgiving special, the Valentine's Day special. We, we watched a lot of Charlie Brown. And, and it's every time they're playing football, she pulls it back. And there's come to a point where you think, okay, Charlie. What makes you think this time is going to be different? Why do you think this time she's going to actually keep the ball there and you're going to, you're going to be able to, man, she's going to move it every time, right? And, and I, I think there are people in the church like that. It's like, okay, listen, you, you try to kick once, you try to kick twice, and then the third time they say, okay, let's have another meeting. Let's, let's talk about this some more. And you say, no, I, I know your game, right? I've wise up to it. I'm not playing that game anymore. You're, you're wasting my time. And so Paul says, listen, you need to warn them. You warn them once, you warn them twice. Now, please understand the warning is to win them back. Look, look what he said in chapter 1 and verse 13, just to remind you. Remember the false teachers. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. Right? So you're, you're, you, you want them to repent, so, as one pastor says, you're not warning them with a stick, you're warning them with an embrace. You're kind of trying to bring them back to orthodoxy, bring them back to being centered on the gospel. And if they're not, but if they don't heed, if they're, they're not coming back, you have nothing more to do with them. You are to expel them. You are not to allow the sin of division to go unchallenged. He tells us why, I think, there in verse 11 knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Some of these people are built up in undermining the church's authority. They are defensive and inflexible. They know best. They alone are the guardians of the truth. And Paul says they're self-condemned. They're cutting themselves off from God. Now, please understand, this requires a great deal of wisdom. This is very difficult to navigate. It's not, not, it, it's not just one size fits all on these issues. Uh, it'd be like if you went to a doctor, and you wouldn't think much of a doctor who was never willing to perform surgery. But you also wouldn't think much of a doctor who, th who thought surgery was the answer to everything. Right? You got a cold, let's go get a scalpel, I'll fix this. Right? right? 
and, and you, you, you need, we need wisdom. It's not, always, it's not always in your face. It's not always surgery, but there comes a point where you, where you have, to, have to cut it off. So for the struggling, we, we comfort them. For the confused, we teach them. For the divisive people, we avoid them if they will not repent. Now, I think all this is important for us as a church, but I also think it's important for you as an individual. You think, okay, well, the divisive people are, are, are those people. Well, I wonder if there'd be wisdom in considering your own heart. Just thinking for a moment is, what is it when you're talking about the faith, what is it that you like to stress? And I think we're probably good as a church in stressing the gospel and in our Sunday morning services and our Bible studies and so forth. But what about your conversations? What about the emails you send, the things you put on social media? Are you constantly debating over foolish controversies and quarrels? Maybe you think there might be in you what we might call low-grade divisiveness. It might be wise to ask other people in your life, hey, do you see this in my life? Am I a divisive individual? And you seek other people's help that you might repent and turn back. You know, the, the book of Proverbs says there are seven things God hates. The seventh is the one who spreads strife among the brethren. And I think we have each other. We have the church to, to help hold us accountable. I was uh, a month or so ago visiting a, a friend in the hospital. I, I won't tell you his name. Um, I, I didn't ask permission. You may be able to guess. But uh, anyways, um, I'm, I'm visiting him, and he had a minder in his room. I've never seen this before. Uh, there was a, the, the hospital, I find it amusing, he might not. I was a, in the hospital, there was a, a hospital staff that was sitting in his room 24-7 because uh, he, he, he kept trying to get out of bed and clean, okay? It's like, where's the mop? I, I, I can't just stay here all day. I gotta, there's things to do. And he's a fall risk. And there's this big sign on the wall, and it says, call, don't fall, right? Call, don't, don't fall. And I think, well, I walked away from that thinking, well, what a great word for the church. Right? We're all, we're all, if you will, we're all fall risk. We all, we all can become slanted in our own theological perspectives. And so what do we do? We call upon each other. Hey, I want you to hold me accountable and make sure I'm causing unity in the church and not a cause of divisiveness. We call each other, as Paul tells us, to warn the divisive. Number two, he tells us to do good. Do good. You see that there in verse 14, don't you? And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, of course, we, we started here, and then we're back here already. We saw this in verse 8. In fact, this is the sixth time in 46 verses that Paul exhorts them to good works. This is the repeated drumbeat of the book of Titus, that we are to be zealous for good works, he says, ready for good works, devoted to good works. And now here in verse 14, the last time, he says, let them learn to do good works. So please understand, good works is learned behavior. It's not natural for us. We don't, it doesn't come automatically to us. We need to learn and relearn and then practice and practice good behavior. What, what that means is that good works are not the result of like a, an emotionally stirring message. Right? You ever hear one of those where you just kind of, you know, the preacher's just on that day or something and it's all kind of working something up in you and you just feel raw, raw, raw and here I go and you go, okay, I'm going to change now and, and we've all done this, haven't we? And so, how long does that last? You, you make it two days? You make it a week? 
Paul says this is something that, that is not just emotionally stirred up. This is something that we learn and we relearn and we practice and give ourselves to it. It, we, it comes from a deliberate understanding of the good works that Christ has done for us. So tomorrow morning, and you say, Lord, I'm going off to work today. And I want to do good. I want to be gentle and kind today. I want to be self-controlled and humble today. Lord, I want to, I want to go through the day, and as your word says, I want to speak evil of no one. I want to be well-pleasing to my boss. But Lord, I, I can only do that if I remember and rejoice in, in the way you have treated me, in the good works I have received from you. I need the gospel. You see, Christian living is only possible through the transforming effects of the gospel. That's how we learn. It's a learned behavior. But you also see it's a purposeful behavior. Read on in verse 14. He says, we devote ourselves to good works. Why? so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So we want to do good work so we can help others. And I would say chiefly, at least that, that begins in the church. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the households of the faith. Especially those in the church. And so I ask, should the church especially of a church this size. Should a church of this size ever have a shortage of nursery workers? Should it ever have, have need and greeters and security personnel and children's worship? Right? If we're devoting ourselves to good works, especially those in the church, should not those needs be met? Of course, many of these good works take place in our community groups where we learn to care for one another, where, where we, we invest ourselves in each other's lives. And if you, if you long to be cared for and long to have an opportunity to care for others, I'll tell you, there's no better place than our community groups. There's a place where you can learn to do good works as you invest yourself in other people's lives. So we do this in the church, but we don't just do it in the church. We do it outside the church as well. We do good works amongst our neighbors and in our community. It was in 2011 that a New York Times editorialist wrote that though he is not a Christian, in reporting on poverty, disease, oppression, evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate their income, go to the front lines at home or abroad. In the battles against hunger, malaria, human trafficking, or genocide, some of the bravest people you meet are these Christians who truly live their faith. I say amen. That's the way it should be. Shouldn't it? That's the way it should be at the Hamilton Baptist Church. It's the way it should be with God's people. It certainly was what was happening in the days of the early church when Paul was writing. In fact, in, during the days of Paul, as I've shared with you before, infanticide was epidemic throughout the whole Roman Empire. That infants were left to be exposed to die, especially those who were crippled or disadvantaged. Seneca, a leading philosopher, explained, I quote him, we drown our children who at birth are weakly and abnormal, end quote. That's what they did. Well, Christians began to care for these children, didn't they? These abandoned children, take them into their homes, saving crippled children and, and bringing them into their homes, these children who are left to die. And they, we continue to do so. We are to devote ourselves to these kind of sacrificial good works. And we do so through ministries like Mosaic. We do so through the West Africa Mercy Ministry, where still to this day, disabled children in Ghana are brought out, 
put in the bush, chained to a tree, and left to die. There's a ministry called West Africa Mercy Ministry, which you support as part of this church that is going out to the bush and finding these children, bringing them into an orphanage, and doing their best to adopt them to Christian families. This is what Christians are to do. We are to do good works. We do so by adopting children that have been cast aside like many of you have in this church or even participating in foster care and supporting those who do, coming alongside, devoting yourselves to these things. We're gonna explore more of this on January 20th in our Sanctity of Human Life Sunday as we focus on orphan care in Northern Virginia. We do so because the world says children are a burden if they get between you and your dreams. The Christian says, I will set aside my dreams so that I may help. The world says we climb over people to get ahead. The Christian says, what I want to do is I want to serve people. I'd rather serve than, than get ahead. The world says, we've never seen God. The Christian says, let me show you what he's like. And living in light of the good works that he has done for me, I will live like Christ. And Paul, of course, gives us some examples here, doesn't he? Look what he says in verse 12. This seems to be an example of good works. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend winter there. So Paul, you notice, is sending Artemis or Tychicus to Titus. I think that little word or is very interesting. I'm going to send one of these guys. I'm not sure who. Uh, uh, Paul evidently doesn't know which one's going to be most effective for ministering in Crete. He's all, the implication is Paul saying, I'm praying about this, I'm seeking the Lord on this. I find that interesting because Paul's writing the very words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in writing the words of God, he's, he, he says, I don't know what to do yet. I'm not sure. And I, I think that ought to be comfort some of us because we're often, well, we don't know what to do. You ever feel like that? I feel like that every other day. I'm not sure what to do. And some of you come to major decisions. Do I take this class or this class? Do I take this job or this job? Do I, you know, do I homeschool, public school? You're, you're, you're debating these issues. And, and take heart that even Paul didn't have all the answers. So I'm going to send one of these guys. Artemis, in case you're interested. You may not, but I am. So here we go. Um, it's, the, it's the only reference we have of Artemis. Uh, but we do know he's named after the Greek fertility goddess. So I think it's probably safe to assume that he's born to Gentile parents who consider their son to be a gift from a pagan god. In other words, he was born in an idolatrous home. Now, evidently, he's a follower of Christ and a useful lieutenant for Paul. In fact, in case you're interested, he, he's actually the one he sends. Tychicus he's going to send to Ephesus, we find out in a later letter to relieve Timothy. Well, Tychicus, by the way, uh, he's actually mentioned five times in the Bible. Also a Gentile who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know Tychicus traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey, was with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment, delivered the letter of Ephesians and the letter of Colossians, and was chosen by Paul to take the offering to Jerusalem. Paul describes him in Colossians 4 and verse 7, our beloved brother and fellow bondservant in the Lord. Evidently, Tychicus was one of Paul's most devoted fellow servants, and Paul invested in this young man heavily. Paul's always looking for godly men to raise up, always looking to, to pour himself into these godly men in order to use them. Ian Bounds once said, the church is always looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery, but more men whom the Holy Spirit can use. And so I'm going to send one of these guys. He said, well, why are they coming? Why is he sending anybody? Well, he's sending them to replace Titus, who's to come to Paul. 
He says there in verse 12, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. I want, I'm going to spend my winter there. So Paul, Paul, Paul by the way, <laughs> he's got a winter somewhere. He's not going to be traveling in the winter in this time. And, and so where's Nicopolis? Well, it's, it's a seaside city in southern Greece, which means Paul's no dummy, right? And you think, okay, where do I want? I've got to spend winter. Where am I going to spend winter, right? Well, I've tried prison before, so, you know, I don't need to do that anymore. And, uh, you know, I, how about some, sea, you know, some sunshine and some sea breeze? I think I'll go to Nicopolis. And so he's going to head off to Nicopolis. And Paul says, okay, wait for your replacement. And once your replacement comes, then you are to what? Come to me. Now, I think this must have shocked Titus. Okay, I, I want you to leave Crete. And I want you to get over and be with me. Uh, because Paul has told him in this letter of point leaders, as we've seen, create community, teach and teach and teach and teach, right? And we've seen this. And then he gets to the end and he reads, oh, by the way, you're not going to be there much longer. I got other plans for you. And he might have thought, I don't know, perhaps this is too speculative, but just go with me for a moment. That he thought, well, this has become my home. These are my people. I mean, I've trained leaders. I've rebuked false teachers. I've I'm finally beginning to see fruit here. And now you're telling me my replacement's coming soon and I have to leave? We, we know, by the way, that Titus did leave. Evidently was ready for his life to be interrupted, ready to go where God sent him. But he didn't go to Nicopolis, as Paul planned, because Paul was arrested before he got there. Paul was taken to Rome in chains. So Titus is sent off to Dalmatia, which is in North, modern Albania, they're starting a new ministry from scratch. Of course, of course, neither Paul nor Titus knew this when Paul wrote this letter. Right? The plan was to all meet up in Nicopolis, and they don't end up meeting at all. They both go separate ways. And, and Paul didn't know that. Titus didn't know that. But everything is about to change. And my friends, I think this is how God works, isn't it? We see a clear path forward. This is where I'm going. This is where I'll be in three years. This is where I hope to be in 10 years. This is what I'm going to do with my family. This is what I'm going to do with my career. This is how things are going to go, right? You have plans like that, don't you? You, you, you have things you want to accomplish in 2019. You, you, you hope to be somewhere or doing something in five years from now. Well, I'm telling you, sometimes God, just, we see the clear path, and before you know it, God takes us off road, doesn't he? He does. And we don't know where we're going. And in fact, the road's not even paved, and this doesn't seem fun at all, and this is not my plan, and there's no map, and there's no GPS, and there's no cracker barrel in sight, and I don't know what's going on, right? I don't know where we're going, and I don't know how this is going to work out, and, 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 and God says, well, I don't care, but this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. Now, it's not bad to have plans. Paul's making plans, but my friends, write them in pencil. I mean, you live long enough, you realize your plans don't always work out. Things do not go as you have prepared, and God will often take you in a different direction. And may we, like Titus, gladly submit our lives to the sovereign Lord who calls us different places, even, even when we go off-road with no explanation. Let's do good and follow him. Well, Paul's plan here is for Titus to get you to him quickly, get here soon. I think, I think the reason is obvious. He, he likes Titus. He misses Titus. Paul, Paul wanted his friend to come and be with him for a little bit. Paul, uh, we get this impression, I think, Paul, Paul is this super Christian Lone Ranger kind of guy. And you, you read his letters, he's constantly surrounded by brothers in Christ. He had a love for God's people. He needed Christian fellowship. He thrived with the encouragement. He loved the church. And, and not just coming to church services, he loved the people. Do you love the church? 
Do you have strong relationships in the church? I think that's so important that Paul is constantly modeling this for us. I'm sure I've told you the story of William Wilberforce before. This young man, who I think was in his 20s, he was 21 actually, I've written down here, when he was elected to the House of Commons in 1780. In 1807, 27 years later, he sat stunned as the entire House of Commons rose to honor him in his relentless battle against the English slave trade. Sir Romilly gave a passionate tribute to Wilberforce saying, when he should lay himself down on his bed, how much more pure and perfect joy must he enjoy in the knowledge of having preserved so many millions of his fellow creatures? So after 20 years plus a defeat in session after session after session of parliament, finally, Wilberforce walks out that night in the snowy um, uh, London streets with his, whole, with his old friend Henry Thornton shoulder to shoulder, and he says with joy in his eyes, well, Henry, what should we abolish next? So where does one get the strength to press on for nearly 30 years against a seemingly hopeless dream of abolition? Well, part of that answer, I think, comes from 1792, when Henry Thornton founded a new community of evangelical politicians and churchmen who lived and worshipped together in the community of Clapham. They were known as the Clapham sect. There was John Veen, the pastor, Zachary McCauley, the editor, Henry Thornton, the banker, James Stephen, the attorney, William Wilberforce, the statesman, and others. All were devout Christians, and all were very wealthy, except for the pastor, of course. And they used their wealth, and they used their time, and they used their energy to do good, to spread the gospel. And they spurred one another on. They were constantly with each other, encouraging one another uh, and, and they pioneered Christian philanthropy. They created institutions for Christian missions. And above all, they were committed to the abolition of the slave trade. So how did Wilberforce hang tough for 27 years? He banded with brothers. He linked arms. I think this is not what we see in Paul's final, final words to Titus. He's focused on the community around him, his band of brothers. That Paul understands that, that you, just like him, are designed for community. You're designed for friendship. We're designed for relationships with one another. And I'm telling you, if you want to experience what God wants for you, you want to become mature in Christ, you want to grow in wisdom, then you need loving friends in your life. And our tendency, I think, is we minimize that need, especially in the men here. I think our culture helps us minimize the need. You go to the, the, the grocery store and you're, you're in line and you see the magazines there. Of course, you're not going to pick them up, right? But you, you're gonna, if you're like me, I guess you're going to read the cover. And what's the cover say? Hey, uh, you know, so-and-so got coffee with so-and-so, right? Hey, this actor became friends with that actor. No, we don't care. We don't know who's sleeping with one another. We value, as a culture, erotic love. We don't value brotherly love. We think friendships are supplemental. They're good if you have time. Or maybe even worse, we think friendships are for weak people, emotionally needy people. Well, Paul doesn't say to Titus, don't worry about coming. I'm a big boy. I have Jesus. That's enough. I don't need you. He doesn't say that. I've said those things. I, I, I mean, by nature, I'm an introvert. 
That's why I have eight children. I'm not, I'm not sure how that works out, but right? I, I like my alone time. I've said, I, I, I got Jesus, that's enough. And Paul would say, that's a stupid idea. Scoff at that idea. After all, I think Paul had Jesus more than most, didn't he? I mean, Paul could have said, listen, I'm, I'm one of the 12 apostles. Um, I've planted churches all over the Roman Empire. I write the very words of God. I've had a conversation with the resurrected Lord. I've healed the sick. By the way, I've raised the dead. And Titus get here soon because I need you. I need to hear your counsel. I need to share my soul. I need to pour out my heart. See, Jesus didn't die to create isolated worshipers. He died to create a Christ-rejoicing community which he calls the church. And it's through this community that the gospel begins to spread. You see, he mentions two other guys, doesn't he, there in verse 13. These two guys are the ones who are delivering the letter. So Artemis and Tychicus will come later. But the way that Titus gets this letter, he gets it from the hands of the next two guys there in verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer. I almost fell out of my chair when I read that, right? Here it is. A lawyer, sir. I don't know if he's bringing incorporation documents or what's going on, but uh, here he is, Zenos the lawyer, serving the Lord. We don't know anything about him other than this verse. But there's another guy there, don't we? We see that. Apollos speeds Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. We do know quite a bit about Apollos. He was a brilliant man from a university town in Alexandria. He was, the Bible says, mighty in the scriptures, fervent in spirit, but he only knew about the baptism of John the Baptist. So it seems like he was a disciple of John, didn't know much about Jesus until he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla and they begin to share the word with him. And as a result, he becomes one of the most gifted preachers in the apostolic era, right? Just because of these individuals saying, hey, let's, let's open the word. Let, let, let me, the young man, let me tell you about, about Jesus. Let me show you what's going on. What, what that means is you never know who you invite over to your house for lunch on Sunday afternoon. You know, some of these young college students that are gonna be gone for six weeks, leaving after uh, this Sunday, maybe next time they return, you, you invite them and say, why don't we go break bread together? Why don't you come over and we spend time? And you don't know who you're gonna encourage. Hey, can we open the word or have you read this book, right? And, and this is what people are doing in the church. We're living together and we're, we're helping one another. And so Paul says, hey, listen, you know, here these guys come and what, what is Titus to do with them? You see what he says there in verse 14. He says, see one, um, that, that you to speed them, right? Best Do your best to speed them on their way. And two, see that they lack nothing. See that they lack nothing. So help them. They're gonna continue on in their mission. They, they have other missionary work to do. And what are you to do? You're to help them. That, that, that is, you're, you know what he's doing? He's telling, telling Titus to collect a special offering, right? Teach your people they are to give to missionary causes, right? It was the Zenus the Lawyer Christmas offering. I don't know what it was called, right? But Titus uses those opportunity to teach your people that we're to sacrificially give. We say, who, well, do, do we have a Zenus? Do we have an Apollos? Yeah, we, we do. We have about Southern Baptists. We have about 4,000 of them. Two of them are here with us this morning, as you already see. See, Paul says, hey, listen, you, you, these missionaries that are in your, your life, these missionaries that are taking the gospel to places you probably don't want to live, what's your job? Your job is to make sure that they have everything they need to do that work in which God has called them. That's our job. That's the good works in which we are to perform. 
That, that as we give even to this Lottie and Christmas offering, we're giving in obedience, I think, to what the word of God tells us. Well, finally, Paul gets there to verse 15. He gives his farewell, doesn't he? He says, all who are with me send their greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. I, I trust this is very encouraging as Titus is reading this letter to the, to the church. And he gets to the end and says, hey, Paul and, and all his team, they, they miss you guys. They love you. They're praying for you. I love that little phrase. They love us in the faith. There's this love between the brothers. You know, there was a, a scoffer of Christianity named Felix in the second century. And he would say of Christians, they love each other without even being acquainted with each other. <laughs> he couldn't get his head around that. The Roman emperor Julian said their teacher has implanted the belief in them that they are all related. It's true. Love them in the faith, he says. And then, of course, he finishes with his favorite word. Every time Paul writes a letter, he finishes with this word. It's, it's, it's Paul's word, isn't it? I don't, I don't know if you, 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 ever, you watch Sesame Street. There's Charlie Brown's Sesame Street. You see where I'm getting all my uh, sermon wisdom. Right? This Sesame Street, there's always like the word on the street, the, the word of the day, right? I've been watching Sesame Street for 14 years. I'm sorry, but uh, this is what we do. So it might be predicament. It might be healthy. It might be sibling. It might be ingredient, fascinating, surprise, embarrassed. It might be concentrate. Right? Some of you are having trouble concentrating right now, okay? Um, there's a Sesame Street dictionary, by the way, if you want. Um, but it doesn't have this word in it. This word, Paul's word. You see there, what is it? Grace, grace. Grace, grace be with you all, he says. Paul's last exhortation as we end our time together. Rely on grace. Grace is found in Jesus. Grace is found through Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Grace is found in trusting in Christ for your salvation and yielding your life to him as Lord. Have you found that grace? Do you know God's unmerited favor? Do you know his salvation, his forgiveness of sins, his adoption to his family? It's all access through grace and trusting in Christ. And it's in grace, as you've heard over and again, that we find strength to do all that Paul commands in this letter. We see, serve each other because of grace. We submit to authority because of grace. We're self-controlled and humble because of grace. We build a Christian home because of grace. We're well-pleasing to our bosses because of grace. We stand up for truth because of grace. Grace has training us to renounce ungodliness and worldliness, as Paul tells us. It's grace that's teaching us to live upright and godly lives. You'll never move beyond your need for grace. Grace is not where you just simply start the Christian life. Grace is what will continue through the Christian life. It will be your power unto godliness as you dig your, your roots deep into the grace of God. Well, a couple years ago, I was preaching, if you remember, if you were here, through the book of Leviticus. And I, I came across an amazing story that just has sat with me. It's a story of every Friday afternoon of an old man he was make, make his way down to the pier on the beach there in Florida, and he would complete the same ritual every Friday. He came, come, came with a bucket of shrimp, and the shrimp weren't for himself. They weren't for the fish. They were for the seagulls. 
And, 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 and the seagulls learned this. They would see him approach and they, they, would, they, would, they would swarm him and they would screech and, and beg and flying all around him. And he would take shrimp out of his bucket and he would throw a few of them up in the air in time and the gulls would come and snatch them out of the air. And, and as he did, he would talk, talk to the birds, it seemed. And finally, his coarse bucket would empty and he would stand there for a few minutes deep in thought watching the birds fly away. Every Friday afternoon, he did this. The man's name was Eddie Rickenbacker. He was an Air Force captain in World War I when he and seven other men were flying their B-17 across the Pacific to deliver a message to General Douglas MacArthur when the crew became lost and they ran out of fuel. The plane went down in the Pacific Miraculously, all eight of them survived the crash and made it out on a little life raft. On that raft, they floated in the Pacific Ocean day after day. They fought the sun. They fought sharks. And on the eighth day, when their rations ran out, they began to fight hunger and thirst. One afternoon, they had a devotional time, prayed together, asking God for a miracle, and then tried to rest. Eddie, reclining on that raft, semi-conscious, with his hat pulled down over his eyes, felt something land on his head. It was a seagull. And he realized that if he caught it, these eight men might have a chance to survive. He slowly moved his hands, grabbed the bird, and killed it. The men shared the food from the seagull and used the remains as fish bait. They would live off fish for the rest of their days until they were discovered. Eddie knew that God had rescued them with that seagull. He never forgot that miracle. And so every Friday afternoon until he died, he would observe that that same ritual. He would go down to that pier with a bucket full of shrimp and feed the gulls as a way of saying, thank you, God, for saving me. I think it's an interesting story, isn't it? Because I, too, have been saved. So have you, my Christian brothers and sisters, you have been saved through sacrifice of another, haven't you? You have received grace, blood-bought grace. My hope is that our fall, this fall that we spend in this little book will be a powerful reminder that we should never move beyond our need for grace. And that in grace, and in rejoicing in grace, and remembering grace, and talking to one another about grace, we would find power to live the Christ-like lives that God calls us to live. Our Father, we're thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus. We're thankful for the gospel, that we who have rebelled against you are now forgiven of all of our rebellion because Christ has died to pay our punishment, rose on the third day, and now invites all who would trust in him to receive salvation, receive forgiveness, to receive everlasting life as your children. Blood-bought grace we have received. We have been saved. And in light of that grace, will you help us, not just for a day or two, but will you increase the desire in our hearts? Will you lead us forward that we too, as Jesus has shown us, might learn to devote ourselves to good works, to godliness, Help us to become more and more like Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.